Welcome back to It's All Relative, the true crime podcast about crime and family. This is the second installment in a series about the 1970 McDonald killings. This may go on for quite a few more episodes, so if you haven't started with the previous episode, I suggest you start with that, then come back and listen to this one. Here's your trigger warning. What we discuss is often not pretty. The introductory paragraph to this episode should have clued you in with words like crime and murder. And I swear, sometimes a lot. You no likey such things, you no listeny. Okay, to draw us back into the proper mind frame, here's Janice Joplin. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge my discomfort at my mini-rant last episode. That mini-rant resulting in my telling my fellow scientists to fuck off? I really don't want anyone to think I am anti-statistics or anti-science. I have a paramedical PhD. And while I would not call myself a statistician, I do know what discriminant functional analysis and Bayesian mean. My comment was merely vocalizing my frustration at how some scientists use their stats, not at the entire discipline. In the previous episode, I laid out the basics of the killing of the McDonald's, which occurred in the early hours of February 17, 1970. This episode will cover some background on Jeffrey and Colette, who they are, how they met. Colette McDonald was born Colette Stevenson. In 1943, Mildred, her mother, had married at the age of 17 to Cowles Stevenson. Cowles was about 10 years older than Mildred. He owned and ran a lunch counter in Patchogue, Long Island. Mildred wanted nothing but to be a mother, and the couple started trying for children right away. Mildred, a rather frail-looking bird-like woman, wanted a girl she could treat like a child at all, and almost immediately she decorated the baby's room, filled it with frilly baby clothes, and decided that the name of her baby girl would be Colette, after her father's name, Cowles. Mildred's dream was not an easy get. She lost three babies before finally having a son in 1939. The babies that died had all been girls, and Mildred had named them all Colette. Four years after her brother, a fourth Colette, our Colette, came into being, and this Colette survived to have two children of her own. When our Colette had her first child, Kimberly, she actually showed the baby girl to her mother and said, here is one of your lost little ones. So look, this case is crazy. I honestly have trouble holding back the snark. Part of that auto-snark is due to all the info I've already gleaned about this case, but have yet to reveal it to you. Now, dear listener, I really don't want to ruin your ability to decide for yourself. However, with all the writing and commentary and documentaries and other blah 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 available about the McDonald case, there are a few things that, to me, seem very worth at least pointing out. But no one ever seems to do that. Dear listener, we have just spoken of one of those things. What the fuck kind of childhood could Colette, the fourth, have had? Oh, and please keep in mind that I am going for the preponderance of evidence here, not any one specific oddity. Mildred marries a man 10 years her senior, and that is her being 17 and him being about 27. A fairly big gap at that age. 
they own a lunch counter in a solid middle to lower middle class neighborhood. But Mildred dreams of having a little girl she can dress in fancy clothing like a china doll. She has four, count them, four baby girls that are all named Colette. Now, I know that this was really common 500 to 100 years prior to that, when the mortality rate for infants was much, much higher than in 1943. But it is 1943. Who the fuck still does that? And what kind of childhood can you possibly have knowing that you are the culmination of all your mother's strivings and you are living in the shadow of your three dead sisters? The kind in which you present your firstborn baby girl to your mother and say she is one of her own grandmother's lost babies? Why am I the only one to think this is weird? And then there's this. Quote, One Friday evening in the spring of 1955, Mildred was returning home from having picked up her son at a friend's house. As she opened the door to her garage, the car headlights illuminated the interior and she could see her husband's bathrobe hanging from the rafters. In the same instant, she realized he was in it. Cowell Stevenson had left no note. He had not seemed depressed. There had been no sudden trauma in their life. Mildred told friends she had no idea what had driven her husband to suicide. Colette, who was 12 at the time, had been spending the night at a friend's house. Her Aunt Helen had broken the news to her because Mildred could not bring herself to do so. Her father's death was the one thing, in later years, that Colette would never talk about. Not to her mother, not to her friends, not to her eventual husband, Jeffrey MacDonald. When she met Freddie Kassab a year later, she told her mother right away that she hoped the two of them would marry, so that everything can be the way it used to be again. And that part's in quotes. After the marriage, Colette began immediately to refer to Freddie as her father. Never did she call him her stepfather, nor would she permit her friends to do so. End quote. First, I really want more info on the death of Cowles. That is sus as hell right there. Second, this woman needed help. And if you ask me which one, the answer is yes. Just listen here to Colette's sister-in-law speaking, meaning her brother's wife. Quote, their father, you know, he died a horrible death. He hung himself. I don't know if Colette saw him or not, but my husband did. He was 14 at the time. She was 11. And after their father died, forget it. That was the end of the world. After that, she and her brother just started keeping things inside. They have always been people to hide the bad things. They both found it very difficult to express their emotions. Like, I remember one time they sat down and discussed, you know, their father's death. And they both got very upset, and there was too much emotion. It was too much of a hassle to remember all the bad times, and they would stop it, shut it down, and drink coffee. That's the way they did it. Mildred is that way, too. She was that way about her husband, and now she's that way about Colette. She doesn't talk to anybody. She doesn't see anybody, doesn't talk to anybody about it. This is the way the whole family is emotionally. They stay very much to themselves. End quote. So after I take a minute to unscramble my brain... I need to say that those quotes were again from Fatal Vision, a book by Joe McGinnis, which will come up in more detail later on, but for now, just put a pin in its existence. Okay, next. Jeffrey McDonald was also born in 1943 and also raised on Long Island in a solidly working-class family. Jeff was one of three McDonald children, one brother older and one sister younger. Their father was said to be a disciplinarian who demanded perfection and obedience. There's not a whole lot said about Robert the Patriarch. A little more is said about the matriarch, Dorothy, and sister, Judy. 
Jeff, however, had a great deal to say about his older brother, Jay, who it would appear Jeff was always trying to prove his superiority over. And now we're getting to another one of those things that no one seems to comment on, but I find infinitely in the WTF category. I don't want to get too bogged down in what some might call ancillary details, but look, no one has ever been able to solidly identify just what went wrong that night in Fort Bragg. But frankly, I don't think anyone has really looked at the human factors that led up to the night of February 16th to 17th, 1970. Get a good look at those factors, and you may get a good look at the why. And there are so many odd things. I mean, these people are fucking weird. So to illustrate some of the weirdness, I'm going to read you a bit of testimony of Jeffrey's brother and sister at the grand jury proceeding. Starting with Jay, the brother, I quote, Jeffrey McDonald's brother was called to testify. He had arrived in Raleigh with shoulder-length hair and a buckskin bag fastened by a large wooden peg, six feet tall and weighing well over 200 pounds. Where do you live now, Mr. McDonald? War Heidi asked. Now? Yes, right here. Before you came here, where were you living? Yesterday? What's your address, your residence address? I don't honestly know what you mean by residence. I've always been curious to know what that means. Let me ask you this. When did you come here? What do you mean come here? When did you come to Raleigh? You mean arrive in Raleigh? I arrived last evening at about 7 o'clock. And where did you come from when you came here? I came here from the airport. The airport in Raleigh? Right. How did you get to the airport in Raleigh? Eastern Airlines flight number 738. And where did you embark on that flight? Philadelphia. How did you get to the Philadelphia airport? In a limousine from the George Washington Motor Lodge near Fort Washington. And how did you get to the Fort Washington Motor Lodge? In one of my automobiles. And where did you start from when you went in one of your automobiles, from wherever you were to? From a house on 307 Aquitong Road in New Hope, Pennsylvania, on the planet Earth where the subpoena was delivered to. Do you keep your personal belongings in the house? I keep my personal belongings in that bag in that room where we just came from. But apart from those that you carry around, do you keep other personal belongings in that house? Some. And you sleep there from time to time? Sometimes. End quote. I mean, this shit goes on for a while. It is a courtroom. I'm surprised no one insisted he talk in a straight line, but they didn't. Here's a bit from the sister's testimony, and to clarify, Freddy Kassab is Colette's stepfather. Quote, I think the thing you know, everyone wants it solved, and maybe we can't accept the fact that we can't solve it. I think my brother has been like a puppet on a chain, at the whim of, you know, a new investigation. I think Freddy Kassab is a very nice, feeling human being. I just think he has dedicated his life to a bad dream. People who dwell on an incident that happened four years ago and devote their lives to it, that's bizarre to me. End quote. An incident that happened four years ago. I just can't with this shit. Even though it hasn't been explicitly stated, it should be obvious to you that Jeffrey McDonald is suspected of the murders and charged. And we will discuss that process in the forthcoming episodes. But let's stay on the topic of background for now. Of relevance, though, are some of the testimony of the psychologists and psychiatrists who evaluated McDonald over the course of the investigation and prosecution. I need to caveat the mental health discussion with the reminder that it was 1970 when the initial exams were completed. 
Homosexuality was still a disorder listed in the DSM, and no one had even heard of Ted Bundy. By the time of the actual trial, several of these professionals altered their determinations or at least expressed some doubt at their conclusions based on new understandings of people like Ted Bundy. In truth, the evidence itself doesn't change, just the mental health professional's interpretation of that evidence. So, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to leave out the parts akin to he tested this way and at the time I thought it meant this, but now I believe it means that. So, Dr. Bob Sadoff was hired by McDonald's own attorney, Ernie Sagel, and he, that would be Sadoff, interviewed McDonald on April 21st, 1970. There is actually quite a lot of information on Jeff's personality in Sagel's testimony, but it can probably be summed up with the following quote. I think he did have some unresolved masculine strivings with the need to overachieve in a super masculine way, which is usually meant to compensate for or to mask any ideas of inadequacy that he may have noted in himself, that that others may have may never have seen. So he had a an, an Achilles heel, let's say, in this area of masculinity or virility, and some narcissistic need to be famous or infamous. End quote. MacDonald was given a battery of psychological tests about the same time he saw Dr. Sadoff. The Army clinical psychologist testified in regards to the MMPI, which is a personality test still used today. Quote, I think the first impression I had that was remarkable, psychologist said, was that there was no indication from this particular test that there was any significant pathology existing. By that I mean, I was asked to evaluate whether there was any indication that the gentleman who filled out the exams was either psychotic or psychopathic. In going over this particular test, I found no indication to support either one of these diagnoses. Secondly, the data from this test was remarkable in what was not there, rather than what was. I found an absence of anxiety, an absence of depression, an absence of agitation, and I expected there to be some there. I expected there to be a high level of anxiety indicated, and what I found was low. My reservation is that the person who completed the questionnaire seems to have answered the questions in such a way as to present themselves in the best light possible. That does not necessarily mean that he lied, but it at least indicates a certain awareness of the implications of some of the questions he was asked, and at least some attempt to present himself in the light best possible. Without pursuing it further, there is no significant pathological condition indicated. However, on one scale here, it happens to be the scale which tends to be most sensitive to picking up feelings of anger and anxiety. It is almost not plottable on the graph, according to this individual's responses. That means there is almost a total absence of any score. That means he did not describe himself in any way as having any anger or agitation, and I find that remarkable. It may, in fact, be true, but I find it rather unusual. In fact, in my experience, this was the first time I had ever seen it. End quote. In other words, McDonald's personality lies within cluster B disorders, and he gamed the system. Jeff and Colette attended the same junior high. McDonald says that he first noticed her in eighth grade. Quote, I can still remember when I first met Colette. We were in eighth grade in the junior high school on South Ocean Avenue in Patchogue, and she was walking down the hallway with her best friend, June Dresser. June was thin, taller than Colette, very attractive. But I thought Colette was more attractive, much softer appearing. She had a sort of vulnerable look. I was standing in the doorway of my homeroom up on the fifth floor, the highest floor, of the Patchogue Junior High School, and they walked past and Colette turned around and looked at me, and I looked back, and they just kept going. But I had the distinct impression, 
that I can still see today, that she was interested and wanted to say hello, but she was a little hesitant or tentative about doing so. I remember then, for about a week, I kept trying to find out who was the good-looking blonde who was always with the other blonde. Some people told me they were sisters, and some people told me they weren't. But they had the reputation of being kind of aloof. And Colette, of course, was from a reasonably wealthy family by Patchogue standards, and they were considered kind of upper class, and I really couldn't seem to find out that much about her. Anyway, I met her again, like, two weeks later, in passing. And eventually I found out what her full name was and where her homeroom was, and we met on and off in the hallways, and I believe in one class. I finally had her in either a history or an English class, and we started talking, and eventually I found out where she lived, and I drove my bicycle over to her house one day, and we met that way. Those were seemingly, in retrospect now, painful times. Driving past her house on a bicycle until she noticed you, and then she'd call you over, and you'd stand outside and talk in kind of a confused fashion. Not trying to be forward or aggressive, but trying to talk to her and get to meet her and know her better. And this would go on for hours. The person she lived next to was Tommy Cohane. He was a kid who had polio and had a weakened leg with a brace. And he was one of Colette's best friends. I ended up becoming a good friend of his too, and we used to go out and play baseball together at his house. But a lot of reason I was over there was so I could end up seeing Colette. She would come over and sit on the fence, and we eventually struck up this relationship, and I ended up asking her out to the movies. It was either in the last part of 8th grade or the first part of ninth grade that we went to the Rialto Theater and sat in the balcony and held hands and watched A Summer Place with Troy Donahue, and I think the blonde was Connie Stevens. We sat through it twice because we were so stunned by its beauty, and it was always sort of our movie. Colette and I always felt that we were these two people falling in love. It was a beautiful thing to us in ninth grade. Now, of course, I still to this day, when I hear that song... I get this big flood of sadness and nostalgia and Colette and warm eyes and her blonde hair and her warmth and me holding her in the theater as a ninth grader. End quote. May I point out here that the painful interactions McDonald speaks about here are, in his account, solely painful for him. I would also like to point out the fixation he seems to have on blonde hair and her appearance in general. Note his comment on Colette's vulnerability? Well, I'm going to follow up with this quote. Freddie Kassab, remember, he's Colette's stepfather, had quickly become acquainted with Jeffrey MacDonald. Colette, it seemed, was virtually obsessed with this bright, energetic, and extraordinarily charming classmate. She doodled his name, Jeff, in double-block letters everywhere, in her school books, in her mother's cookbooks, and on the desk blotter in the Kassab living room. While they were dating, in junior high school, Freddie Kassab would often drive them to the movies, even after they stopped seeing one another, following Colette's summer flirtation with a student from Purdue. Jeff continued to show up at the Kassab house, unbidden. He would mow the lawn in summer and shovel the driveway in winter. More than once, he would leave a surprise gift for Colette on the back steps of the house, ringing the doorbell and then disappearing before anyone could come to answer it. With Colette at Skidmore and Jeff at Princeton, and with Jeff having announced his intention to pursue a career in medicine, both Fred and Mildred were delighted at the resumption of the relationship. Jeff was so obviously a special young man, so full of drive, of ambition, of intelligence. To both Freddie and Mildred, it was gratifying to think that Colette would someday be this doctor's wife. End quote. Look, I'm going to show a little bit of my age here, but when I was watching footage of Jeffrey McDonald, I realized he's a living Eddie Haskell. Eddie Haskell was a teenager who lived next door to the Cleavers in the 1950s TV show Leave it to Beaver. He was an oily, smarmy, kiss-ass who had all the adults snowed. Look it up yourself. Feel free to compare. My God, seriously, he mowed the lawn? He left her presents? Jesus, stalk anyone much? 
So, as was suggested in the quote, Colette and Jeffrey stopped seeing one another towards the end of high school. According to Jeff, Colette basically ghosted him one summer, and when he confronted her about it, she told him they were broken up and she was seeing someone else. Jeff says that his world fell apart. Nevertheless, it didn't stop him. He doesn't specifically say, but I suspect that some of the girls he saw in high school were seen at the same time he was seeing Colette. He says he began having sex with a girl named Petty Wells after he got the brush off from Colette, and he is overly descriptive about that sex. Now, Jeff is nothing if not stalwart in his need to portray a certain impression, and great sex or no, he got a partial scholarship to Princeton and needed a mate that would project the Princeton image. He says, quote, In the fall, Penny came down to Princeton for two weekends, but it became clear something was missing in the relationship. Penny seemed out of place at Princeton. I know that. I don't seem mean to sound snobby, but it's just that things didn't fit. End quote. So he dumps Penny, and then, quote, it was only a week or two after that I started thinking of Colette. It was weird. My birthday was coming up in October, and I wrote her a letter, like on October 7th or October 5th or something like that. It was very strange because I was thinking of my birthday coming up, and I wrote to Colette out of the clear blue, end quote. He opens up to her. He talks about how they were so great together. Wouldn't it be great to get together? He even closes it with a little poem. The clear blue my ass. Then she responds, and whatever she really says, McDonald finds it tantalizing. Yes, he actually uses that word. I mean, she doesn't say I love you, I roll. But quote, It was a great letter, and I remember, oh, it was. It's so clear now. I remember sitting in my room in Witherspoon Hall, a fifth-floor walk-up in Princeton, and getting this letter from Colette on that beautiful handwriting of hers, and my heart jumped. End quote. Barf! So she mentions they could keep in touch and maybe he should come up and see her sometime. Colette is at Skidmore, about 160 miles away. Of course, he's on his way up to see her on the first weekend it does interfere with football. Ugh. And it's not long before they are, yet again, an item. In his infinite need to discuss his sex life, MacDonald outlines what he says is Colette's first time and how he was almost annoyed at how nervous she was and how much time he had to spend coddling her until he could complete the act. I think I'm just going to give up on attempting to hide my snark. This man is garbage. Ding, 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 ding. Bring the garbage bell back, JP. And look up True Crime Obsessed if you do not get this reference. By their sophomore years, Colette is pregnant. August 30th, 1963, they go to Colette's parents to tell them the news. In a strange turn, Mildred, that bird-like woman who wanted a china doll for her daughter, thought they should get an abortion and finish their schooling. Dorothy McDonald comes to support her son, and does no one else think it's weird? that the Kassabs had never met Dorothy McDonald up to this point, because this was their first time meeting her. It's not like they live in that big of a town. And their children are dating. Anyway, she helps convince them that all would be wonderful, and now Colette could be with Jeffrey every step of the way, since she was going to quit school and move to Princeton. For Jeff. Sigh. They were married two weeks later, and I love this bit. Quote, the wedding was held in a Catholic church because Jeffrey McDonald was a Catholic. End quote. He's what? This is the first and only time anyone mentions religion. Jeff goes back to Princeton, and by the end of his junior year, he'd been accepted into medical school at Northwestern. He does not finish his degree at Princeton, but chooses to begin his medical training. He did his internship at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. This ended in June of 1969, and by July 1st, he was in basic training in the Army, on his way to be a Green Beret. Seven and a half months later, Colette and their two daughters would be dead. 
Guys, there is so much to say here. I am pretty sure this case will hold the most episodes of all that I've covered so far. So stay with me if you can. It's worth it. Next time, we will talk more in-depthly about the night of the murders, the investigation by the CID, the mad hippies. But before I go, I do want to take some time to deal with the elephant in the podcast, the book Fatal Vision. One of the biggest problems with this book is the amount of attention it has drawn over the years to the point of becoming a serious distraction from the nuts and bolts of the case. Granted, some people think that the book itself has skewed the real story or distracted from the actual evidence, and therefore justifying the time spent on talking about or even impugning the book. There is a whole other book that rips McGinnis a new one for false representation called The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. There is even a pretty good limited podcast about Malcolm's book and the history surrounding it called Morally Indefensible. I really like the pod. Malcolm's book is eh. Basic background is this. Jeffrey McDonald was prosecuted for the murders of his wife and girls. McDonald got it in his head that someone should write a book about his ordeal and initially contacted Joseph Wamba. Wamba was a relatively big-time author in the 70s and is still one of the biggest names in the business. But Wamba refused to let McDonald dictate what would go in the book. He wasn't a ghostwriter and, as a point of integrity, he wanted the product to be his writings and come from him. So McDonald turns to Joe McGinnis. McGinnis was originally interested in the McDonald story as a piece for the newspaper, but Jeff was still looking for the book, and he convinced Joe to start on the piece and see if he could make a book out of it. Joe was able to make a book out of it, and so this is what happened. Now, McDonald gave McGinnis full access to everything. In fact, while the trial was underway, McGinnis lived with McDonald and his defense team. McDonald was certain that McGinnis would see how innocent he was. And for most of the time Joe spent on the case, he did believe that McDonald was innocent of the crimes. The problem came on slowly, and was a result of McGinnis sitting through the trial, living with Jeff, and in particular having late-term access to notes Jeff had made about the time immediately following the murders, notes which contradicted many of the things claimed at trial or that Jeff had directly told Joe. And as you can hear that jingle, that would be my cat trying to be in this blanket fort I have. So basically, McGinnis realized that McDonald was guilty, and he put that in his book, with all of the evidence laid out for the American public to see. McDonald was incensed. He sued. From prison, no less. McGinnis believed the same thing about his work that Wamba did. The unfortunate issue was that McDonald's lawyer, Bernie Siegel, put this clause into the contract. Provided that the essential integrity of my life story is maintained. As these things often go, it all boils down to how you interpret that sentence. MacDonald claims that McGinnis lies in the book, particularly when he claims Jeffrey was guilty. Lying would mean that the integrity of the life story was not maintained. McGinnis, of course, says that the integrity was maintained. It's not a lie. And by the way, by this time, Jeff had been convicted of the murders. So legally, McGinnis was not lying. MacDonald was. William Buckley on Firing Line talks about this in depth. You can find this, you can find this video on YouTube. It's worth the watch. Some of my background is in reviewing and critiquing others' work. I do it as a matter of course now, so when I started reading Fatal Vision, I was doing it in a critical manner. I actually listened to the audiobook, by the way. It is 28 hours long. I listened to it twice. Did McDonald win? Not exactly. The jury had a hard time deciding in the end, and McGinnis did the math and just settled so he could get back to trying to make a living. So keep in mind that there is a lot of controversy around this book, and surrounding now two movies made based on the book. 
McGinnis could have handled his presentation of why he believed McDonald was guilty and in particular why he murdered his family in the first place. He could have handled those things better, but I honestly thought it was very well researched. And by the way he presented the entire case, it was an honest attempt to be sincere. In other words, on balance, I thought it was trustworthy. So if you like what you've heard thus far, please give the pod a review, like it, and or subscribe, or all of the above. One star trolls can stay under the bridge. Here's a little heart to finish things up. See you next time on It's All Relevant.